thank you for the uh, birthday greeting. Kind of wish he had not mentioned my age. I'm celebrating the 31st anniversary of my 29th birthday. And uh, I'm going to throw this over here. That little bit. Move that up a little bit. There we go. In any case, the good news is, you know, 70 doesn't seem so old anymore. And uh, <laughs> in any case, God is good. One step, one year closer to the Lord coming back or me going to him. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for this time this morning. Thank you for your word. Father, I, I pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts this morning. I know a lot of us have a lot of things going, and on this, um, on this Lord's Day, we celebrate dads, we celebrate, Lord, fatherhood, we celebrate the fact that you are our Father, our Heavenly Father, and we thank you and praise you for all the wonderful provisions that you give to us, and we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning by your Spirit, guide and direct us, Lord, as we seek your truth, and help us, Father, to apply these things to our hearts and lives, to make a difference uh, for uh, you and for the furtherance of your kingdom, in Jesus' precious name, amen. There once was, uh, there were two brothers once who terrorized a small town uh, for decades. They were unfaithful to their wives, abusive to their children. They were dishonest in business. One day the younger brother died unexpectedly. The surviving brother went to the pastor of the local church. He said, I'd like to have you conduct my brother's funeral. He said, but it's important to me that during the service, you tell everyone that my brother was a saint. But he was far from that, the pastor countered. But the wealthy brother pulled out his checkbook. Reverend, I'm going to give you $100,000 for your church. All I'm asking is that you publicly state that my brother was a saint. On the day of the funeral, the pastor began his eulogy in this way. He said, everyone here knows that the deceased was a wicked man, a womanizer and a drunk. He terrorized his employees and he cheated on his taxes. And then he paused. But... As evil and as sinful as this man was, compared to his older brother, he was a saint. <laughs> you know, I'm always amazed at the fact that the Bible calls every single uh, person who knows God, every one of God's children, saints. If you're a Christian this morning, the Bible calls you a saint. Now, when most people think of saint, they think of someone who has a halo around their head or someone who basically did a miracle or two in his life or maybe was canonized by the Roman Catholic Church as a saint. But that idea, that concept is totally alien, totally foreign to biblical teaching. The Bible clearly tells us that all Christians, every true believer, that's you and I, are called by God saints. You may not feel like a saint. Some of you don't look like saints. Uh, we may not smell like saints, but the Bible says we are saints. In fact, whenever the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to one of the New Testament churches, he always, most of the time, addressed the church as saints. Everyone in the church was referred to as saints. For example, in Romans 1-7, he starts out by addressing to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. In 1 Corinthians 1-2, he says, to the church of God which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Ephesians 1.1, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Uh, Philippians 1.1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Colossians 1.2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. And so if Paul were writing a letter to 
Foothills Church, he would probably start off out by saying, to all the saints who are at Foothills, that's every single person here who has put their faith and trust in Christ. That's you and I. You see, the Bible tells us that a saint is not a sinless person. It is a saved sinner. We are called saints. Saints who occasionally sin, yes. In other words, being a saint is not based upon your own personal merit, but on, uh, exclusively and totally on the merit of, of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And it is because of our faith in him that we as sinners are referred to as saints. I was doing a funeral a couple of weeks ago for a, a woman who's not a part of our church, and she was a, um, a, had a reputation for being a little bit edgy and a little bit on the wild side, and, and someone uh, asked me after the, or actually it was before the funeral, whether or not I thought she was in a better place, and I said, absolutely. I said, her, her going to heaven isn't based upon her own righteousness any more than our going to heaven is based upon our righteousness, but only upon the righteousness of Christ alone. And because she had that faith in Christ, we know exactly where she's at. The word saint basically means one who's consecrated, one who is set aside. Set aside for what? Set aside for God's use. That's what a saint is. Not a perfect person in and of themselves. And so a central and huge part of, of what it means to be a saint is someone used by God. And what God uses, he changes. And that's really the whole story of the Bible. As we go through the parables, we discover that. God loves us, he chooses us, he uses us, and he changes us. As we study the parables of Jesus here, we're discovering what all that really looks like. And we're calling those qualities, those characteristics, the keys to the kingdom. And a lot of them we got listed here on the banners around the, the room here this morning. What does God's kingdom look like? And uh, what does it mean to be a kingdom citizen in this world? Now, the big problem we know is that we live in a world where basically there are two kingdoms. First of all, there's the kingdom, the realm, or the rule of God. And secondly, there's the, 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 the kingdom of the world, also known as the realm or the rule or the kingdom of Satan. Satan is alive and well. These two kingdoms are constantly at war with one another, which is why the battlefield of this world looks the way it does. We live in a broken and a bomb-blasted world. I mean, just look at the news this past week. There's a battlefield going on. And unfortunately, there are a lot of casualties. The war was actually declared way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and there's been an age-long conflict uh, ever since between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. You and I are not just spectators. <laughs> we think sometimes we are. Uh, we are engaged in this battle as participants, and there's a spiritual battle raging around us all the time, whether we realize it or not. We are not only set apart as saints, we are also set apart as soldiers in God's kingdom, in God's army. And we are engaged every day in a fierce spiritual battle that is waging and raging all around us at any given moment. Most of the time, we're not aware of it. But it reveals itself in many different ways, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. And so basically, our passage here this morning, we discover four stages in Christ's war against Satan. And in discovering what Christ has already done, we discover that although the battle rages around us, we have already won the war in Christ. What he did on the cross 2,000 years ago won the war. Although every day, we're still until he comes back, we're still in an ongoing spiritual battle, and we're in a 
battlefield called this world. The first stage of the war is the fact that Christ has invaded Satan's territory. Take a look at how that's powerfully illustrated for us here in Luke chapter 11, verse 14. Jesus was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the man's... Is this thing really... I'm sorry, lower or higher? Down. Down. Okay, good. Is that better? Good, thank you. Let's start again. Luke chapter 11, verse 14. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I, pa if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The religious leaders are accusing Jesus here of um, casting out demons by the power of Satan, and he refutes their accusation with two powerful, logical arguments. First of all, he points out that if Satan is fighting against himself, that's the end of his kingdom. In other words, Satan is not going to fight against himself by casting out his own demons, right? That doesn't make any sense. No enemy fights against himself by taking out his own army. And so their accusation that Jesus is using Satan's power to cast out Satan's followers, demons, that doesn't make any sense. His second argument is the fact that if he is casting out demons by the power of Satan, then so are their sons or other Jewish exorcists. And the religious leaders didn't want to admit that. But the response of Jesus here really reveals that this present world is Satan's kingdom. Now the Bible uses that word world in three different ways. First of all, there's the world of people. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. That's the world of people. Another way, another way that world is used is, is, is the world of matter. In Acts chapter 17, verse 24, it tells us that it is God who made the world and all that is in it. That's the world of matter. But then there's an invisible world, a, a value system that is behind this visible world that we see, and this is the world that Satan rules. John 12, verse 31 tells us, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Satan is referred to as the prince of this world. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that Satan runs the material world, that's in God's hands. But what it does mean is that Satan is actually ruling or in control of the hearts and lives of people who have never been born again. In fact, Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Who are the sons of disobedience? Those who have not put their faith and trust in Christ. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 5.19, We know that we are of God and that the whole world, that is, the, the people, the philosophy, the system, the value system, lies in the power of the evil one. And so Satan not only controls individuals, he also controls entire nations. At one point, Daniel refers to uh, Satan as the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Not just Persia, but that was an example, present-day Iran. 
And so all of world history, listen, it's not just a record of man's politics and practices. All of world history is really the brutal and bloody record of the fierce battle that is raging between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. You know, there's no other religion, no other philosophy in the world that explains that better than Christianity. Unless we really understand this, I don't think this world makes a whole lot of sense, does it? Why is there evil in the world? Why? Well, Christianity has a rational, logical explanation. We look around, it's obvious to anyone that we are in a battlefield. And there are casualties every moment of every day. Okay, so, so did, did Satan know that Christ one day would invade his territory? Absolutely. Right from the very beginning, when, when God made that promise of a, of a Messiah, a chosen one, the seed of the woman, back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and in doing that, God declared war. There's going to be a redeemer coming someday. And Satan did everything he could to keep that Savior from being born. How did he do that? Right at the very beginning. He incited Cain to kill Abel. So the messianic line had to go through the brother Seth. In, in Genesis chapter 6, he mixed the godly with the ungodly. He polluted the, the human race to try to stop that seed from being passed on. Every single attack against Israel, all through the Old Testament, every attack, like Haman in the book of Esther, was an attempt to wipe out God's people and keep that, that Savior, that Messiah, that promised one from, from coming into the world. And then when Jesus was born, what did Satan do? He did everything he could to kill him, to take him out. He had Herod kill all the young babies there in Bethlehem. All throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus, his enemies, enemies were conti continually trying to to arrest him and, and have him put to death. And Satan even entered into one of his own disciples, Judas, in order to sell him out. But the cross was not Satan's victory. It was Satan's defeat. Colossians 2.13. It tells us that because of the cross, because of the cross, he rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Praise the Lord for that. Now we come to our parable here in our passage. And it really reveals how Jesus Christ not only invaded Satan's kingdom or world system, but that Christ actually entered into the very house, the very court, to set the people free that Satan had been guarding. And so the second stage in God's war against the devil is the fact that Christ has overcome Satan's power. Christ is the victor. And Jesus explains what that looks like here in this parable. Take a look at verse um, 21. Jesus said, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so Satan here is, is pictured as a strong man armed. J.B. Phillips, in his translation, refers to him as, as armed to the teeth. In other words, Satan does all he can to protect his kingdom from God's attack. And you know what that tells us is that we should never underestimate the anger, the power of Satan. He is alive and well, and he's hell-bent with a tremendous amount of power. In verse 15, he is called uh, Beelzebub, the, the ruler of the demons. He's alive and well. 
in the Old Testament, Beelzebub has been translated Lord of the Flies or Lord of Dung. The name Satan literally means enemy, adversary. Devil means a slanderer. Now, there's only one devil, there's only one Satan, but there are many, possibly hundreds of thousands or millions of his followers, that is, demons, and he is the ruler of them all. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 12 that Satan slanders his people, slanders God's people, and accuses them. He is called the accuser of the brethren. You have felt his attack. He is called uh, the accuser of the brethren because he wants to rip us off and rob us of our faith and joy. How does he do that? He whispers in our ear. He reminds us that, listen, you're not good enough. God will, will never forgive you. Look at what you've done. You call yourself a Christian. You'll never measure up. You can't deserve heaven. You're disqualified from God's mercy, grace, love, and forgiveness. Have you ever felt that way? Sure you have. And when you do recognize that that is a, a lie from the pit, it is a lie from the pit, and it's a spiritual attack. And so when you're attacked like that, what do you do? You come back to the promises of God. You, you come back to, the, to, the, to a promise like Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. You're not a dead man walking, so to speak. There is no condemnation. And because of the cross, your spiritual bank account has been filled by Christ's righteousness, not your own. It's not based upon anything you could earn or deserve. It's not based upon your righteousness, but Christ's righteousness alone. Romans 3.22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Satan is referred to as the accuser of the brethren. He's also referred to as a serpent. He's referred to as a lion. He's referred to as a dragon. And so while Christ is at work in the world to gather, Satan is hell-bent to scatter. While God is, is basically putting things together, Satan is tearing things apart. During his earthly ministry, Christ overcame Satan's power by, by healing diseases. He cast out demons. He even raised the dead. But his greatest victory was when he rose from the dead. In resurrection glory, he is now seated in the heavenlies, according to Ephesians 1.21, far above all rule, all authority, all power, and all dominion. And so Christ has invaded Satan's territory. We need to understand that as, as citizens of God's kingdom, in understanding the, the keys to the kingdom. We need to understand that Christ has overcome Satan's power. And thirdly, Christ has destroyed Satan's weapons. In verse 22, Jesus says, but when someone's stronger... Then he attacks him and overpowers him. He takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied. What's that tell us? That tells us that Christ has taken his armor. He has destroyed his weapons. What are some of the weapons that Satan uses in the battles that we face every day? I list at least three or four of them from our passage. First of all, pride. Number one weapon that Satan loves to use is pride. It's the number one thing on God's hate list. Whenever there's a list of the things that God hates in the Old Testament, number one at the top is arrogance or, or pride. Why? Because it keeps us from a relationship with God. It keeps us from a relationship with one another. I guarantee the things that you struggle with the most, chances are, nine out of ten times, it's because of pride. On your part or on the part of the other person, it's arrogance. In, in 1 Timothy 3.6, it warns us that a church leader should not be a new convert. Why? So that he will not become conceited, and fall into the condemnation incurred 
by the devil. Pride again is the number one thing on God's hate list. It was, it was pride that turned Lucifer, the angel, into Satan, the adversary. In Isaiah chapter 14, it kind of gives us a little background about how Satan got to be where he's at. And it, it talks about the fact that he was not content to be a creature that would worship God. He wanted to be God, and he wanted all the creatures to worship him. In fact, even in Matthew chapter 4, verse 9, Satan even asked Jesus to bow down and worship him, if you can imagine that. It has been said that pride is the poison of the soul. You struggle with it, I struggle with it. It's one of Satan's greatest weapons. C.S. Lewis calls it the greatest sin in the world. He says pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. If anyone would like to acquire humility, the first step is to recognize that you are proud. Ben Franklin once said, I got so humble once, I got proud about it and had to start all over again. <laughs> pride affects everything. It affects our attitude, it affects our actions, it affects our words, it affects our very destiny. A second weapon that Satan uses that, that, that Christ has disarmed is fear. Hebrews 2.14 says that because of the cross, Jesus might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You know, they say that fear is one of the greatest emotions that we all struggle with. Satan uses that fear to keep us in bondage. Satan uses fear to basically destroy us, rob us, rip us off of our faith and joy. But it is the fear of death that is one of the greatest weapons that Satan uses. A couple of weeks ago, I was getting my hair cut over here. Uh, my barber, I uh, always uh, have gone to him for about 10 years, and he knows I'm a pastor, and I've shared Christ with him several times, and, and uh, he, he's not really interested in that. But he asked me what I was doing for the weekend. This was a couple of weeks ago, and I said, well, tomorrow I'm going to be doing a funeral. And so he's cutting my hair, and he goes, you know, he's the same age as I am. Um, 31st anniversary of 29, never mind. But as he was cutting my hair, he said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about death. He said, I've been thinking about it all the time. The people that have died, my friends, my family, even my own death. I'm like consumed with, with thoughts of death. And I thought, huh, this is a great wide door of opportunity to share again. And so I did. I shared the gospel. I shared Christ. I talked about the fact that the next day at the funeral, I'm going to be talking about the hope that we have in an afterlife and that God made us. He created us to live with him forever in heaven. And that this life is in many ways boot camp. It prepares us for what we're going to be doing forever with him. And he said, yeah, but what if you're wrong? Well, I summed up for him Pascal's wager. I don't know if you've ever heard of Pascal's wager. But basically, the philosopher, the medieval uh, mathematician Pascal, asked the same question. He said, how do we know that what we believe is true? He had a lot of atheist friends that uh, made fun of him. And so he asked this question. And it's a proposition he presented to his atheist friends. As a believer, Pascal said this. He says, suppose you are right, atheist, and I'm wrong. Suppose God didn't make the heavens and the earth. Suppose mankind is just a coincidental cosmic joke, and there's no purpose, no reason on earth, and we all die like a dog. Now, Pascal said, I believe otherwise. I believe that the earth was made by God, that mankind is God's creation, that man has fallen away from God in sin, 
And God has sent his son Jesus, who's visited this planet and died on the cross and shed his blood for my sin. And by faith in him and through his grace, I've been forgiven of my sin. I'm a new creature. I'm on my way to heaven. I believe that. But let's say that's all false. Therefore, he says, we both die. None of those promises are true. You die, I die, annihilation, it's all over with, end of story. He says, but, Pascal says, suppose that's not the way it is. Suppose I'm right and you're wrong. Suppose there is a God and all these things I've described are true, and then we both die. Then you find yourself, because there is no God in heaven, and because he's just, he's just and holy, you find that you are separated from God in eternal damnation and a sinner's hell. But I'm the recipient of the promises of God through faith. Pascal says, in both cases, you have everything to lose and nothing to gain, but I have everything to gain and nothing to lose. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live, even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What a confident hope we have in the promises of God because of, of what he has done for us. We don't need to fear death. Praise the Lord for that. That's, that, that. that's a fear that Satan cannot use as a weapon against a Christian. We as Christians don't need to be terrified of death because Christ has abolished death once and for all. 2 Timothy 1.10 tells us that our Savior, Christ Jesus, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That word abolish means to, to, to render useless or to make inactive. Now, death is still on the scene today but it does not terrify us because jesus has diffused death and basically given us hope and it no longer hurts us in his life and in his ministry jesus sought to take away fear and primarily the fear of death that every person whether they admit it or not apart from christ struggles with second timothy 1 7 for god has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Fear and faith cannot live long in the same heart. As we trust Christ, we can face life unafraid. A third huge weapon that Satan uses today in this battle, this battlefield, is lies. Satan is a liar. He's actually called the father of lies. He's the source of all lies. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth. And by the way he lived, and by the way he, by, by the way he taught, he exposed Satan's lies by revealing God's truth. You know, it's important to know that Satan's lies are often religious lies. In fact, I think most of them are. In 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, it tells us that Satan is disguised or he masquerades himself as an angel of light. And so his lies look very appealing. They're very attractive. People are drawn to them. Satan even twists up scripture, misrepresents and misinterprets scripture to draw people away from God's truth into deception. Every false cult, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Christian science, and so forth, they're all based on a misrepresentation, a misinterpretation of God's word. They claim, oftentimes, that the Bible is an authority, but they twist it up. And of course, they have their own authority that they look at as well. Listen, it is the Holy Spirit of God that leads us to truth revealed in his word. But Satan works in the hearts and the lives of people through lies, especially religious lies. Why are those, those the most dangerous? Because those end up condemning a person to a Christless eternity. 
The test of all teaching is the word of God. I had a friend several years ago, Jim, a neighbor, who was a Jehovah's Witness. He was raised a Jehovah's Witness. He was a devout Jehovah's Witness. He raised his family uh, as Jehovah's Witness. One day, about four or five years ago, he, uh, he began to have serious doubts about what he believed. Is Jesus really God? Or is he Michael the Archangel, as uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will say, just a created person? He began to really struggle with his faith, and so he told me that he went down to, uh, he was living in Temecula, he went down to um, uh, Penfolds, which is a place I used to always go back in the day uh, for breakfast of cafe, and he sat down and he ordered breakfast and he opened the Bible up. And he made it, he, he, he prayed. He said, God, if Jesus is who he claims to be, the Son of God, I need to know that. I have been following this Jehovah's Witness doctrine all my life. I need to know the truth. Is, is Jesus God or not? And he just opened up to the book of Acts. Now, I wouldn't have recommended the book of Acts, but he just opened the book of Acts and he started reading. He said, Brad, I didn't get to the second chapter before the tears came down my face. And uh, I guess the, the server came by and said, are you okay? He came to the realization that Jesus is God. What was that based upon? The word he came to the word, and by God's spirit, his eyes were opened, and he, re- and, and he realized for the first time that what he had been believing all his li- life were, were lies. And within a few months, he brought his wife to faith in Christ, and about a year later, his, their only son came to faith in Christ as well. It was all based upon the word of God as truth. No matter what the credentials of a religious leader might be, I don't care how many letters behind his name, If he's not teaching or she's not teaching the word of God, she's a false teacher. He is a false prophet. 1 John 4.1 tells us, do not believe every spirit. Don't be gullible. (laughs) Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Lies. One of Satan's greatest tools. One of uh, Satan's greatest weapons. Fourth deadly weapon of the enemy is hatred. Satan hates God. Satan hates God's people. You know, he knows he's doomed. He knows he's going down. This is how evil he is. I want to take as many people down with me as I possibly can. That's why there's a battle going on. He knows where he's going someday, into the pit forever. But he's going to take as many people as he possibly can with him. The Bible says he's a murderer. He's referred to as a destroyer. He uses hatred. Now, hatred of evil is a holy hatred that comes from God. Psalm 97.10 tells us to hate evil, you who love the Lord. But most of the hatred in this world is against good and not evil. And people love the darkness, and they hate the light. The world hated Christ when he was here, and guess what? He hates you as well, especially if you're a follower of Christ. John 15.18 tells us that the world, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Hatred usually comes from fear and blindness. Why does a terrorist blow up dozens of people? He's fearful, he's blind, and it leads to hatred. Why does a white supremacist shoot innocent children? Why? Because of of blindness and and, and fear, and it leads to hatred. Why does a a religious fanatic uh, kill someone of another faith? Because of blindness and fear that leads to hatred. Satan uses the weapon of lies to blind men's minds. He's His weapon of fear is to control men's heart, and the result is hatred. Someone once said, short is the road that leads from fear to hate. 
people are afraid of something, they're blinded to it, and then they, it leads to a hatred. And Jesus points out that the only way to destroy Satan's weapon of hatred is love. That's, that is so counterintuitive. That is so countercultural. That is so against our human nature to respond to hate with love. We all struggle with that. But God gives us the ability to do that because of the cross, because of Calvary. And he has given us a choice. Choice, in fact, in and of yourself, it is the greatest power that you have. You now have the power to choose. When you put your faith and trust in Christ as your Savior, he gives you the Holy Spirit of God within you. Romans 5, 5 tells us the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And now we are taught to love one another, and not only, not only that, but we are called to love our enemies. Is that easy to do? Not at all. But it's a choice. Because of Calvary, I'm free to choose. And so I choose. Max Lucado put it this way. He writes, I choose love. No occasion justifies hatred. No injustice warrants bitterness. I choose love. Today I will love God and what God loves. He says, I choose joy. I invite God, I, I invite my God to be the God of circumstance. I will refuse the temptation to be cynical, the tool of a lazy thinker. I will refuse to see people as anything less than human beings created by God. I will refuse to see any problem as anything less than an opportunity to see God. I choose peace. I will live forgiven. I will forgive so that I may live. I choose patience. I will overlook the inconveniences of the world. Instead of cursing the one who takes my place, I'll invite him to do so. Rather than complain that the wait is too long, I will thank God for a moment to pray. Instead of clenching my fist at a new assignment, I will face them with joy and courage. I choose kindness. I will be kind to the poor, for they are alone, kind to the rich, for they are afraid, and kind to the unkind, for such is how God has treated me. I choose goodness. I will go without a dollar before I take a dishonest one. I will be overlooked before I will boast. I will confess before I will accuse. I choose goodness. I choose faithfulness. Today I keep my promises. My debtors will not regret their trust. My associates will not question my word. My wife will not question my love. And my children will never fear that their father will not come home. I choose gentleness. Nothing is won by force. I choose to be gentle. If I raise my voice, may it be only in praise. If I clench my fist, may it be only in prayer. If I make a demand, may it be only of myself. I choose self-control. I am a spiritual being. After this body is dead, my spirit will soar. I refuse to let what will rot <laughs> rule the eternal. I choose self-control. I will be drunk only by joy. I will be impassioned only by my faith. I will be influenced only by God. I will be taught only by Christ. I choose self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He says, I, to these I commit my day, and if I succeed, I will give thanks. If I fail, I will seek his grace, and then when the day is done, I will place my head on my pillow and rest. <laughs> Good words, wise words, based upon his love for us and the fact that he requires us to love one another with everything that we are. We are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. Lord, for the reminder this morning from this parable, 
of what you have done for us 2,000 years ago on that cross, that, that although we still face battles today, Lord, the war is won. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Father God, we thank you for the joy we have in being your children, for the hope that we have in eternal life, for the way that you provide for us by your Holy Spirit every moment of every day in the battles that we face. Father, I pray that you'd help each of us. I know all of us in this room struggle in some areas, different areas, but Father, it's all a battle. Father, help us and, and remind us of your spirit that guides and directs us, that we have the victory in you, that, Father, we face every challenge biblically, that we don't resort to the flesh, and, Father, that our struggle, Lord, is, is not with flesh and blood, but with spiritual forces in dark places. 